At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. I want to ask you this morning once again to open up your Bible to James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 9 through 11 and verse 27 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in a chair in front of you, around you, or if you have it on your smart device, the words for the Scripture will be on the screen. But if you'll stand with me, let me, uh, let me read this text for us, and we'll, uh, we'll pray. Uh, hear from the voice of God today. This is James chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Let the lowly brother exalt or boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers, its gra- withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you speak. You're not some some God that is deaf, can't speak, and can't see, and just stone, but you are the living God. You are the one who speaks, and you have spoken to us here in your word. And so, Lord, this morning, as we receive your word, would it be received with faith? Would your spirit give that to us? And would he give us a faith that leads to obedience? We want to be people that hear your word and do it. So work among us now. Shape us and grow us. Help us become the whole and mature people that you design and desire for us. And might we have great joy in that. We thank you for your word. And we pray and ask you'd help us now. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. Well, let me ask, are you undergoing this morning a trial of affliction? Are you undergoing a financial or economic trial in some way? You you might look at your your bank account and see you don't have as much as you hope to have. Maybe you're living uh, really meal to meal, paycheck to paycheck. It's really slim. There are no margins. Uh, maybe perhaps you're even in some significant debt and you're just in, in financial trouble and straits and you would say, yes, that's me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or stand up or anything like that right now. But you knowing yourself and where you stand, you'd say, yes, I am in a trial of, of uh, economics. I, I do have a, a financial trouble right now. And and that bothers you. It's there. If that's the case, we have a good word for you this morning. But what about if you're doing okay? What if you about look at your bank account and you look at your financial standing? Perhaps you have a pretty significant portfolio of financial investments and everything is secure and sound. And you even have a wealth manager who helps you plot the course for your retirement. And you look at things and like, hey, I'm humming along. I'm doing great. You've got your investments in Bitcoin and like you're going to rock it. You're just doing wonderful. You're prosperous in your finances. Could you be in a trial as well? You might not think about it that way. We would all agree that the person who's living in poverty is in a deeply difficult trial. They are in a, in a time of, of uh, trying that, that would 
be such that none of us would want it. None of us would vote for it. None of us would sign up and say, yeah, sign me up to be in a, in a financial crisis. Like, yes, I would love to be in a trial of poverty. But I want to know if having poverty, prosperity, could prosperity itself, having wealth and influence and financial security, could that be a trial as well in the opposite direction? We think of trials as the times in which we lack and we have need, but what about the times when we have no need, when we're secure, when we're, when we're standing on solid ground, so to speak? Could, could our prosperity be a trial in the opposite direction? What do we do when we hit those trials? If you're undergoing a trial of poverty, as a Christian, you, and you may hear other Christians tell you, well, okay, I understand that. And we, would, we would call you to have a real and a vital faith in Christ. We would expect and hope that you would put your, your confidence in Jesus, that no matter what you don't have, that your hope would be just clinging to Christ in everything. But would we expect the same sort of faith, the same aggressive faith and vital faith in Christ to be there for a person who's in a trial of prosperity? Would we call out to each other and say, no, cling to Christ, put all your hope and trust in him? The reason I ask these questions is because the trials of poverty and the trials of prosperity all come down to a question of maturity for us. What does mature faith look like when we're facing poverty and when we're facing prosperity? What does mature faith do with our possessions or with our lack of them? James has been writing to the church, to us even today, his, his words speak because they are the words of God. They speak to us today about what it means to be mature in our faith. What does mature, whole, complete Christianity really look like? And he, and he started this chapter by talking about the trials that we meet and how in those trials we are to, to count it all joy when we face those trials because we know that within them, as we count them joy, perseverance is developing. Steadfastness is growing. And steadfastness should be there so that we are mature, complete, lacking nothing. His call is for us to, to remain under our trials so that we grow and we become mature people. And, and James has been addressing this. And now he comes to the topic about our possessions. What is mature Christianity? What does living the truth really look like when it comes to Lacking possessions, or when it comes to having a lot of possessions. You see, the gospel has an ethic. Our cultural stories tell us you just do it your own way, live it your own way. It even has a cultural stories about economics to one degree or the other. But the gospel has an ethic, and it has a, a way for us as followers of Jesus that we are to mature and to grow in regard to our possessions. So what about your possessions? What does mature faith look like in this arena? I want to share with us this morning that mature faith puts its possessions in their proper place. A mature faith, a complete faith, a wholeness to our Christianity, it puts its possessions in their proper place. James wants to examine these two trials. It's what he does here in verses 9 through 11 and verse 27. He begins to examine these two trials, that of poverty and that of prosperity, and he wants to point us to what is truly valuable in Christ. He wants us as Christians to see, here's how you are to think about poverty, here's how you are to think about prosperity, and here's where you're to really put your hope, and, and here's how you're really to value things in the world. So I want to take these in turn this morning, go one by one, poverty, prosperity, and then our value system, and address what does mature faith look like in that. If mature faith puts possessions in its proper place, 
How does that work itself out in our lives? Well, let's start with poverty this morning. Let's, let's begin there. And, and the point here is this, that in Christ, poverty does not define us. In Christ, poverty does not define us. Now, James starts this way in verse 9, and he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. When he begins to speak about the lowly brother, James is speaking about those in society that are poor. Those who are basically humiliated. They, they have a low social standing. They don't have much in the way of finances. They don't have much in the way of prosperity. They're not looked highly upon. They're just the poor kind of fringes of society. They, they don't have enough wealth to get into the doors of influence and power and fame and culture. They're just the ignored, forgotten, poor, disreputable folks of society and economic status. That's the term lowly there. But in the term lowly, it's not just economic and social status, James is also referring to spiritual status as well. He's pointing out the status of their heart. You you see, there can be proud people that are poor, just as there can be humble people that are rich. So this idea of lowliness speaks into not just economic standings, but spiritual standings as well, to be poor in spirit. These lowly believers in both finances and heart, they're called to do something surprising. You might identify with the lowly brother or sister here this morning. You may not have much. You don't have a loaded account, no Bitcoin to your name. You're struggling. You've got a spiritual poverty of heart as well, the kind that Jesus describes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of God here has an encouragement for you. James says, if that's you, guess what? You get to boast. You get to boast. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait, pastor, like, boasting, that's not a Christian virtue, right? Like, we should not boast. That's a bad thing to do. Anybody who's proud or arrogant, like, stop that. No way. Boasting is not good. James has in here the idea of biblical boasting. There is a kind of boasting that Scripture speaks of that we should do, that we should take up. It's a kind of boasting that finds its footing in Jeremiah chapter 9. The song that we sang, My Worth is Not in What I Own This Morning, it finds its words from Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, so if you're going to boast about something, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So if you're gonna boast, God says, boast in me. Rejoice, exalt, be proud that you know me, the living God who is full of steadfast love, the living God who is full of justice and righteousness. Like, boast that you have a relationship with me, that you're close and connected with me. Paul, in the New Testament, he says this in Galatians chapter six. He says, far but." Far be it from me to boast, I'm going to exclude boasting, except, he's got one place, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one place I'll boast, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So this is the kind of biblical boasting that James is talking about here, the right kind. It's, it's for a person in their trial of poverty to boast in Christ, to boast in the Lord, to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is where is found, as James puts it, their exaltation. Boast in Christ, you who are poor and lowly. Boast in the cross of Jesus, which is 
bought you and purchased you for himself. Boast in God who loves you and has given himself for you because that's where your exaltation is. This idea of exaltation has both a present reality and a future hope behind it. Jesus points to the present reality in Luke chapter 6. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in this world and poor in spirit, even poor financially, they have the blessing of God on them, the eye of the Lord on them. James says this in James chapter 2, verse 5, just the next chapter over. He says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom whom he has promised to those who love him? That's the future idea of being exalted there. There's coming a day. When those who are poor and lowly, both in heart and economics, will be exalted, they'll be be raised up. They'll receive the wealth of the inheritance of the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see, the kingdom of God is upside down from the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world says the end people are the people with wealth and power and prestige. They're the people who have it going on, who know what's going on in life, who can open the doors that society holds closed to others just by their bank accounts. But the kingdom of God flips it over and says, no, it's the poor in spirit. It's the poor in this world who are exalted and raised up. Now, here's the point. The believer who is facing a trial of poverty should not be ashamed or believe that their lack of financial standing and status in this world diminishes them in the eyes of God. The poor are not, and in no way will ever be, a lower-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. God, in fact, elevates and exalts those who are poor. He lifts up the ones who have nothing. And that's good news if you're in a trial of poverty This perspective should be very, very helpful for you. You may be poor in the things of the world, but you can be rich in the things of God. In Christ, your your poverty doesn't define you. Your, Your bank account, or lack thereof, it doesn't measure you in God's sight. God loves you. He's given himself for you. And it's a profound reality that many of the poorest people in the world have a deeper faith in Christ and a more mature view of their possessions than any other. One way I know this to be true is is through going on a short-term mission trip. Uh, About 10 years ago, I went to India on a trip just for a couple weeks. And our group there, uh, we, we had the privilege of going up into a remote region of India to some remote tribal villages to, to share the gospel with those around us in their communities and to meet with the existing Christians and pastors that were there and to encourage them. These folks had nothing, literally nothing. Their, their homes were like these cinder block squares with some corrugated steel that stood as a roof that protected them. My office over here on the other side of the building was bigger than most of the homes that we went to and visited. Nothing. Very, very poor. And yet when we met with the Christians that were there, you would think that they were some of the richest people in the world. Their joy and their hope and their faith was contagious. It was palpable. At one place we stopped, this this church, this small little church, had very little. They, They prepared a meal for us and for our team. 
It was a chicken curry meal, rice, and some other local fare. It was, it was great. After our meal, as we got back into our bus and started heading out, the, uh, the missionary that was hosting us and was translating for us, he just had this dumbfounded look on his face. And we were all kind of like, you know, what, what's going on? What's, why the surprise? And he said, I, I can't believe it. What? What's going on? He said, they gave you their chicken. Like, well, that was in our meal, right? And he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. That was their only chicken. The people in this village are just that poor, and they fed you out of their poverty because they love Christ. They connect with what God is doing in the gospel. You see, their poverty did not define them. They were rich in the things of God, maybe poor in the things of this world, but rich in the things of God. Now, now here's where two realities stem from this perspective. First of all, if you're a Christian in a trial of poverty this morning, don't despair as if God's against you. He's not. You're called to boast in God, exalt in him. There is no lack, there is no insecurity in God, even if you don't have, even if you're poor. Set your eyes on Christ. Recommend to your heart the promises you have that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. This world may look down on the poor. You may feel that. The systems of this world are tilted against the poor to keep them from ascending. If the love of God is not out of reach for you, his love is not tilted against you. If anything, heaven leans more towards the poor who have their hope in Christ, not the things of this world. Make your need aware, unknown. Make your need aware among us. We desire to be an Acts 4 church where there is, to quote the scriptures, no poor among us because we hold all things in common together. I can tell you story after story after story of people in our life groups meeting the needs of others in our life groups as a church family. We have a benevolent ministry and team, finances set aside at our church to help you in your need and in your affliction at the church. So let us know so that we can help and serve you and be a part of rejoicing, not in our possessions, but in the things of God and in Christ. If you, that's you this morning, don't let your poverty be the thing that defines you. Let Christ be the thing that defines you. Not only that, but those who are in positions of prosperity, we have a posture towards those who are in poverty. Those of us in positions of prosperity should never look down on those in poverty. To judge a person in poverty based on an assumption about their work ethic or about their education or about their ethnic background is prejudicial partiality, and it's sin. Christian maturity is acting to lift up the poor to help them in their need, to love our neighbors. One of the earliest practices of the Christian church, one of the earliest practices of Christian virtue was to give alms, to, to give to the poor, to meet their needs directly. For the prosperous, which I think is probably most of us, we should work for the social, economic, and spiritual betterment of everybody. One of the things I've learned to pray in the prayer book that I use uh, daily to just help guide my time of prayer and reading in the word, has a prayer that has this line in it. And it's been helpful for me to pray it. And I want to commend it to you. The line says this, Lord, let not the needy, O Lord, be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor be taken away. I pray that every day to remind me that there are poor people who need my help and need your help. And I shouldn't forget them. I shouldn't ignore them. I entrust them to God, but I also look for ways to be a means of answer to that prayer. We must, if we're prosperous, care for those who are poor. 
Trials of poverty should not define us, nor, on the other hand, should trials of prosperity. Here's where James goes next. You see, a mature faith that puts possessions in its right place, it, it deals with poverty and prosperity. So in Christ, poverty doesn't define us, but also in Christ, prosperity doesn't define us. Here's where James goes next. He addresses, James is an equal opportunity encourager here. He goes to the prosperous in verse 10. And the rich, okay? So he's talked to the lowly brothers and sisters. He says, let them boast in their exaltation. And the rich, brothers and sisters, they are to boast as well. That's implied here. They are to boast in their humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, they will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now I have to be honest with you. James here, notice he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a middle class in his taxonomy. He's got the poor and he's got the rich. So we're sitting in one category or another. No middle class here today. We're either poor or rich. You and I are in one place or the other. And, and the likelihood is knowing the community that we live in, most of us, knowing the, uh, the median income around our community just given to us by census data, we're prosperous. By and large, I'm just speaking generally. We're prosperous here. There's a high percentage of us that are actually in a trial of prosperity. We are the wealthy and the affluent that James is speaking to. What are we to do? Well, we're to boast, but our boast is to boast in a different direction, in our humiliation. What? <laughs> like, that does not seem like something any of us would boast in. Yes, I'm going to be lowered. I'm going to be humbled. And yet that's exactly what he's, he's telling us we should do. We should boast in our humiliation. Now why would he say that? It's a warning here. Affluent Christians should remember that they're not to set their hope on the things of this world, on their possessions or their prosperity or security and their finances, but to realize that their wealth is transitory. It's quickly passing. It, it, it's gone in a moment. And James illustrates this by looking at nature and he pulls from the Psalms to just remind us of this as well. He, he quotes and he says, because... Like a flower of grass, he will pass away. You look at your grass, and one day you have lovely green grass, and it's just beautiful. And then the scorching heat comes, the sun hits it in the mid-August, and it's just toast. It's crispy. You're afraid that if the lawnmower runs over, it's going to start a fire in your yard. It's just that dry and dead. Like, that's your wealth. That's the stuff you have. It's, it's gone. In the 70, maybe 80 years we get on this planet to live for pursuing wealth, what does that mean? Why? Why? Now, this word here, pass away, James speaks, it's not a word about judgment. James is telling the wealthy that their wealth will cease to exist. It'll be gone. You can't hang on to it forever. There's no U-Hauls full of cash that go with you after you die. It's gone. James says, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I mean, think about that. You're pursuing hard, climbing the ladder financially, building the stock portfolio, having, gaining, hoarding, getting more and more and more, and you don't know the day you die, and when you do, it goes to somebody else. It's all gone. Now, friends, is that the legacy that you want to live? I mean, is that what you want to be known for you? Like, you, you massed the millions, and then you died, and it was somebody else's. That's why Christians who are rich should not anchor our hopes nor make our wealth our identity. 
The brother and sister who is in a test of prosperity would be wise to consider the day when their wealth is gone. Psalm 90, or 49 says this, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. It's gone. I love the perspective of R.G. Letourneau and how his life illustrated this. R.G. Letourneau was one of the wealthiest people in the 20th century. Uh, he was an industry and manufacturing tycoon. He had over 300 patents for earth-moving equipment. But his wealth didn't define him. It didn't become his identity or his reality. In fact, he committed himself, he described himself this way, as God's businessman. He was going to do business well, and then he was going to give it away. He lived off of 10% of his income. He, he flipped the tithe principle around and gave away 90% of his income and his wealth and just lived off at 10%. He said this, the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but it's rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. In Christ, prosperity doesn't define us. So think about what this means for our lives. Uh, Douglas Moon, in his commentary on James, points out, to the rich believer, tempted to think too much of himself because the world holds him in high esteem, James says, take pride not in your money or in your social position, things that are doomed to all soon fade away forever, but paradoxically, in your humble status, in a, as a person who identifies with the one who was despised and rejected by the world. Jesus was one who, who said, I have nowhere to lay my head. Wealth didn't define him. He didn't have it. And yet, the scripture says, he being rich became poor for our sakes. Those who of us who are affluent must know that there will be a great leveling. Our wealth, though it may open doors for us here in this life that only few doors can open, that can only be opened through great wealth, they will not, our wealth will not open the doors of heaven any wider for us. God is not more pleased with you because you have greater affluence, nor is wealth a display of greater blessing in your life by God. It's a lie of the prosperity gospel to say that God loves you more because you have more. Your wealth will fade. And all the more so, we should use our wealth to bless and to serve and to care for others, especially the household of God. We must embrace and build our lives around Christ as our identity. We must leverage the prosperity we have for the sake of the gospel and the well-being of those made in the image of God. So the singular way a rich person, and again, remember James has poor and rich, right? He doesn't have middle class here. So you're in one boat or the other. The single way that we, in our affluence in America today and our affluence here in this community, can demonstrate that our prosperity does not define us is by giving it away with open-handedness not hoarding it and keeping it for ourselves. Let our wealth be a means to help those with little, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Those with the most should proportionally give most to provide for the needs of the poor and the weak and to advance the gospel. That's what a mature faith looks like. It puts possessions in their proper place. Which leads us to ask, what is the proper place for our possessions? It's a question of our values. What do you value? James shows us what we should value. In Christ, people are more valuable than possessions. In Christ, people are more valuable than possessions. The Lord values people as we should. This is what verse 27 says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, 
So the, the right kind of religion, and by the way, when he dis- uses the word religion, he's not talking about the religious practice of coming to church and, and singing and reading your Bible and prayer. He's talking about the outward ethic of our faith. What does Christianity on street level really look like? What is, religion is what's lived out there, not just the doctrines that we profess or the teaching that we ascribe to, but what does our faith really look like in the real world? How are we living out the truth? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. I'll stop there for just a moment. When James describes orphans and widows, he's got the whole gamut of people in need who are disenfranchised, marginalized, and lost. From the beginnings of life, the orphans, who have no one to care for them, no adult to, to, to provide for their needs, all the way to those, the widows at the end of life, who can be exploited and abused and taken advantage of because of their frailty and weakness, and they have no one else to care for them either. And everybody in between who is weak, marginalized, forgotten, ignored, abused, you name it, James has the whole spectrum in mind. What is religion that is pure before God? It's to care for them in their affliction, in their poverty, in their weakness, in their need. You may say, well, no, James says and uses the word visit. Now, James here doesn't mean just show up at their door and be like, hey, how you doing? You all right? Cool. I'll see you next week. The term visit here, it has a deeper sense of it. It means, one lexicon defines it this way, to care for or to look after with the implication of continuous responsibility. It means that for everyone in that spectrum, orphan, widow, which by the way, in Jesus' society in James' time were the most neglected, the most abused, the most downtrodden in society, (laughs) he says, you take them in. You make them your own. You care for them in all of life. In Christ, we are to value people more than possessions. And doing that, real mature faith takes responsibility and sees to the well-being of those in society that are marginalized, those in society that are targets for exploitation and abuse, those who are incapable and those who are forgotten. Again, another New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, he says, our concern for the helplessness, the helpless of society, including the ones that make us uncomfortable, demonstrates that our religion is pure. James asks, in essence, did you in fact realize that the, meaning, the meeting of needs is not peripheral? It's not optional. It's central. It's priority to our faith. The approach of our care is not exclusive from the call of holiness. You, you may say, well, James keeps going. He says, not just to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, but it's also to keep oneself unstained from the world. There seems to be a little bit of a a confusion around that. To be one who keeps himself unstained from the world, doesn't that mean we like build up like castles? Like we find our fortress. We go in and we hide from those non-Christians out there, those sinners who get their sin on us. We don't want to be around them. So to keep oneself unstained from the world means to, to bunker down, fortress up as a Christian, and we'll come out when it's all over and the nuclear holocaust has happened. No. James calls us to live distinctly as Christians in the midst of the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world is about an internal posture of our hearts. To pursue and to love righteousness, justice, and God's steadfast love. It is to let the grace of God change us from inside out so that we live as holy people in the midst of an unholy world. Caring for those who are poor and broken and needy. We are to pursue Christ as our holiness and to be set apart in the world he's placed us. 
James here has in here perfect balance, outward responsibility socially to all those who are downtrodden in the world, and inward integrity and holiness in all our conduct. This is, this is the way of Jesus for us because Jesus lived this way. He is the example for us. This is completely consistent in every way with his way of life. He was the holiest of all human beings without sin in any way. He won righteousness not by giving into the systems and structures of this world that offered him material glory and wealth, but he instead renounced them and he trusted his father to provide all he needed. He was the greatest servant. He, being rich, became poor for our sakes so that we might be rich in him. He served and he loved and he lifted up the lame, the leper, the unclean, the poor, the outsider, the widows, women, orphans. He suffered on behalf of his enemies and he laid down his life on our behalf. Jesus died as our example and our victor and our substitute so that we may be raised to life with him to walk in new ways. Here's what this means for us. Christians today should be cultural leaders in caring for the needs of the poor and the marginalized. We as Christians today, mature faith, should care deeply and act accordingly to end things like human trafficking. We should engage in serving those who have special needs and mental and physical disabilities. Christians of true faith, mature faith, should be eager to provide for the needs of the elderly who are so often forgotten these days. Mature faith looks to bring right justice and equality against racism and prejudicial treatment of others based on skin color, both individually and where our society has erected systems of exploitation and privilege. That is to say, we are to be pro-life Christians. And that means way more than just caring for the unborn. Yes, hear me clearly. We should be against abortion. But we should also be for making sure of all of life from the womb to the tomb, and supporting and working for the good of humanity in every stage, in every phase, and every situation of life. Inside your bulletin this morning, there's an insert. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday for us. And it's a way for us to recognize the importance of life in every phase, particularly in regard to the unborn. Yesterday was the 49th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court, we want to resource you, and so I want to encourage you with this, with this insert to take some time to look through the ways that you can apply this in your life, the way you can go to work. You can be acting to care for those who are broken in need, not just the unborn, but, but others as well. On the back, there's some uh, organizations that we are committed to and, and partnering with uh, to help. There are many pregnancy centers, but other ways in which pregnancy centers care for both women and men, the unborn and families as well. Uh, our campus in particular uh, partners with CareNet Pregnancy Center in Berkeley and in Detroit. If you scan that QR code, it'll take you to a resource page where you can click on the links to these specific organizations as well and get more information about them. But we want to live in a way that places personal profits lower and the well-being of others higher. We, we want to be people of Christ. We want to embody let me say it this way. When we embody and advance greedy, the greedy screams of the world that treads human beings underfoot in order to increase market share or personal wealth, we betray the gospel ethic. We need to renounce the lies of both the right and the left. The right saying, hey, it's just trickle-down economics and everybody will win. 
and the left saying, well, it's just wealth redistribution by force. Both of these are cultural lies that we need to reject. We need to live as people with generosity saying, the value is in Christ and in people. We love people. We give ourselves to people. We should live with open hands with our wealth and live to elevate all people regardless of their social economic status or their personal decisions. For the Christian, and let me say this again, it's people, human beings, image bearers of God, which we all are, are more valuable than possessions, which is why I keep saying mature faith puts possessions in its place. So let me ask you again this morning, are you in a trial of poverty? Will you exercise mature faith? Will you boast in your exaltation and knowing Christ? Will you, will you share your needs so that we can help meet that? If you're in a trial of prosperity, will you also boast in your humiliation and, and be one who places people above possessions, that lives generously and to give and to care? These two trials bring us to the need to see that our possessions or our lack of them should not define us. Christ is our treasure. He is our hope. True, living, maturing faith expresses itself in the care and the valuing of all human beings made in the image of God. So friends, let me ask you, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.